Well, church, if you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Proverbs chapter 16. This is the first Sunday since I've been pastor at Poplar Spring that we've not been in some kind of a sermon series, uh, walking through a book of the Bible, uh, studying chapter by chapter through uh, a book of the Bible. And uh, we're, we're headed to uh, a, a series where we're going to study through uh, the birth of Christ. I'm going to uh, look at Advent and, and what it means for us that Christ would come and be born in the flesh. Um, but we have these two Sundays where we've finished the book of First Timothy, and we're not yet there to the Advent uh, series. And so I prayed as I saw the Lord this week, where should we be studying this morning in the, in the text and the scriptures? I couldn't get away from this one singular thought. And it's that God is in complete control and that God is completely sovereign. And I think we as a church, we as the, the church, and as a world, uh, as a whole, we need to understand that truth now more than ever. And I think if you think back over the, the last year, um, the, the nation that we live in and the world that we live in and this, this cultural moment that we live in, Maybe one of the strangest years in history, um, uh, COVID and its impact on the, the entire world, um, the, the, a nation that's, that's divided as ever over racial tensions and injustice, uh, the, the, maybe the most divisive presidential election that, that I can remember, um, the church, even what we're doing now this morning, being so differently, uh, done differently across the, the world, whether meeting sporadically or distanced or even through the internet. Um, these are strange days that we live in. And I know we say that often, and, and we need to stop and, and understand that God is sovereign. And, and we don't need to just hear that. Like, I think we say those sorts of things, and we hear that, that kind of thing in church all the time. We, we pray that way. But do we often think deeply about what that means and the, the, the implications of that for our, for our lives? Um, what does it mean that God is in control? That he's not caught off guard by the problems in our world. That he's not caught off guard by the, by the, the difficulties in your, in your home. He's not caught off guard by the, the doubts and fears in your heart. That in all of those things and in all of those ways, he is completely sovereign and in control. Now, this is often a difficult thing to understand and, 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 and swallow, that, that God is supremely sovereign. That, that he is in control of all things. That he knows how all things are going to work out. That he declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10, that whatever God wants to happen will ultimately happen. Now, those are not hard concepts to understand. You understood the words coming out of my mouth, right? Unless my redneck accent is just too, too strong. And then maybe I need to back up and say it a little differently. Uh, but, but, but those are not hard things to understand. They're hard things to, to accept, right? When you think about the weight of them and, and the implications of them. And to be clear, there are other theories out there. I don't want to present this to you as if this is the only way that people are thinking through this. There are other theories out there about God's sovereignty, or rather the lack thereof. Um, open theism, which I'm not recommending, would suggest that, 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 that God is sort of, to summarize, like a, a watchmaker. That he puts all of the intricate pieces together, that he is creator, and that he's put all the intricate pieces together, and he's wound the watch, the world, up, and he just lets it go. And however it unfolds, it unfolds. He's done his part. There's other theories like process theology that would say that God is in process, that he's evolving just like our world is. And just like the world is changing, so is God. The problem is, with either of those ideas, is that they're unbiblical. 
There's no scriptural support for that. And in fact, if you look at the scriptures, the one fact that we see over and over and over again from beginning from Genesis to Revelation is that God is in charge. He's in control of all things. And he's, he doesn't just know what's going to happen. He's orchestrating all of it. That his hand is over it. That he's sovereign in it. And he's orchestrating all things. This can be difficult to accept. Because I think, I think we want to, when we hear things like that and begin to think about the implications of that, we want to push back and say, well, what about free will? What about free will? I've got free, free will, right? God can't infringe on my choices. Otherwise, there's no free will, right? I think to that we would say yes and no. If we begin to think about what that means, there's no such thing as absolute free will. If you don't believe me, then as soon as church is over, then go get you an extension ladder and climb up on top of the church and jump off and try to fly by flapping your arms. You can will that to happen as much as you want it to happen, and you're going to find that concrete to be very hard. Why? Because you can't do it. You're constrained. Your will is constrained by nature. You don't have the ability to do that. Here's another example. Go back uh, into your mother's womb and be born uh, an Ethiopian in the 18th century. You can't do that. Why? Because your will, your desire may be to do that. Your will is constrained by time and place. You had no choice of when or where you were born. Here's another example. Uh, as we're teasing out this idea of absolute free will, choose today, like right now even, set your resolve that you will never, ever sin again. Like some of you chuckled. And, and, and the reason you would laugh is because you know that, that, that you're not going to be able to do that because you're constrained by nature, that you're a sinner by birth and by choice. And though that you may have the natural ability to make certain choices, our sin nature constricts us morally from actually doing it, from actually living perfectly. And so in all of these examples, whether it's flying like a bird, whether it's being born in some other time or some other place, or by the, the choice of, 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 of stop, stop sinning, all of those ways are showing us that we don't have absolute freedom in our will because of nature. But there's a second proof that we don't have an absolutely free will. Uh, we're not absolutely free. The Bible would show us that because God is absolutely free. Uh, the Bible says that God can and does override human free will when he desires to do so. So you go to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Do you see what the word is saying? God looks at a king or a president and he says, I can turn you whatever direction that I want you to go. Do we believe that? Do we honestly believe that about the situation in our nation? Well, does it say that anywhere else in the Bible? Or is that just a sort of a standalone verse that would say that in Proverbs 21.1? No, it's, 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 it's in Scripture in places like Genesis chapter 20. You don't have to turn there with me, but write it down if you want. Abraham in Genesis 20 goes to where... King Abimelech reigns. And Abraham had a problem, as many of us do, with sin. And, and so Abraham decides to lie. There's a fear that Abraham has. He says that, that, that he's in fear of his own life. If, if, uh, if, if, his, if, the, if the men of this, this, this region look upon Sarah, his wife, they'll want her for themselves because she's so beautiful. And they'll kill him so that they can have his wife. And so he fears this and so he lies. And he lies and says that Sarah is his sister. Well, he gets to this region, and King Abimelech does indeed see Sarah, and he likes what he sees, and so he takes Sarah to be a part of his harem of, of, of wives. 
but God comes to Abimelech in a dream. If you remember what happens here in Genesis chapter 20, he comes to Abimelech in a dream and he says, hey, Bubba, you're a dead man because you're about to commit adultery with another man's wife. And Abimelech says, wait, 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 wait a second. I had no idea. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know that she was married. I didn't know that Sarah was married to someone else. And God says in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, listen to what God says. God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And listen to this next part. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Did you catch that? Abimelech certainly wanted to touch her. He took her to be one of his wives. That was his intention. He had intentions of touching her. And God wouldn't allow it. If God can override the will of a human king, he can certainly override our wills whenever he is good and ready. So I give you these examples to show that logically, just thinking about this, we can't have absolute free will because God does. For absolute free will to exist, someone's will has to bend to another's. And in fact, what we see in Scripture is that everyone's will bends to the Father, bends to a sovereign God. God is supremely sovereign, and everything that happens in this world, he either causes or permits to happen. Now, while that may seem scary, or while that may make some of us uncomfortable, we need to know that this is really, really good news. This is really, really good news because there's, there's implications of this that, are, that are, are practical for us in everyday life, right? Romans 8.28, that, that though things were meant for evil or though suffering comes into our life, he means them for our good. Like that's, that's truth we can believe and live out tomorrow, uh, that, that nothing will thwart his plans for the world or for your life as a believer. Ephesians 1 verse 11, that tomorrow, whatever comes, you can trust this sovereign God. That the miseries of life, the sufferings of life, never have final word because they serve, even the miseries and suffering, they serve a sovereign God. Solomon lays this out for us in Proverbs 16, and so that's where we'll be this morning. It's Proverbs chapter 16. As you turn there, if you're not already there, let me lay out the goal for you today um, in, in sort of a standalone sermon where we're not in a book of the Bible studying through a passage uh, week by week. There are some sermons and passages of Scripture where you're given a to-do list, right? Like you, you, your obedience looks like fill in the blank, do this thing, live this way. Uh, a really, really practical application. First Timothy that we just finished studying is, is that sort of uh, letter. Uh, a lot of practical application in our last sermon series. Then there are other passages and other sermons that are meant to transform the way we live as our thinking is transformed by reflecting on the Word, by studying and meditating on the Word. What I mean is that when we see God in the Bible and we begin to understand more of who He is, understand His character, understand who God is, we grow and that transforms us because we see Him in the Word and it changes the way we live in very practical ways. It changes our perspective. It increases our faith. It gives us confidence in Him. It, it puts our problems into perspective. It produces hope and trust and perseverance as we reflect on His character and who He's revealed Himself to be. This is one of those kinds of passages and sermons. Proverbs 16 is that sort of, of text for us. It is weighty. And it's, it's, there's, there's no fluffy or shallow thoughts here, church. We're swimming in the deep end of the pool this morning with Proverbs 16. But my prayer is, and what my prayer has been this week as I've studied and as I've prayed for you, is that our life, our faith, they're transformed as we have a greater understanding of who God is, who God's revealed himself to be in his word. And so I want to push us there this morning to think about our sovereign God and how that changes the way we live tomorrow. All right? So four truths 
about God's sovereignty from Proverbs 16. Um, We're looking at the first 15 verses, but four truths here. Number one, we rest because God is in complete control. He is completely sovereign. Look at verses one through three. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Look at what these verses are telling us. God is in control of the areas of our life, even those areas that we think that we're in control of, right? Look at verse 1. The plans belong to us, but to whom does the answer belong? It belongs to God. That, this means that absolutely, yes, we should plan, we should strategize, we should work hard, but in the end, God decides the outcome. His tongue, it belongs to his tongue to decide the answer. So what should the result of that understanding be? What should the result, our our response to that sort of sovereignty be? Well, look at verse 3. We should commit to God those plans, those desires, those strategies. We should submit them to God in humble dependence. Listen, friends, his sovereignty is meant to diminish our pride. So that when we understand he's in control, we can come to him and, and we can rightly, and the response should be rightly, to lean on him, trusting his sovereignty. And that, that's humility on our part. When we come before him and say, God, I've fought through this, I've prayed through this, I have my own thoughts and plans about it, but I want to submit them to you and humbly say, I don't know how this is going to work out. I'm leaving it in your hands. And the result of that is to go through things in life and, and that we wouldn't look back and say, man, I, I, I did that. Do you see what I did here? Do you see how I accomplished this? Do you see how these things are things that I've produced or done? Now that we'd look back and say, that's what God did. Because way back before these things even started unfolding, I laid this at God's feet and said, you've got to do it, God. That's that humble dependence that this this kind of understanding creates. What about verse 2? Sort of seemed like I just skipped over that, but we can't skip over that. Look at verse 2. Shows us that God judges our motives, right? He's weighing our spirit. He's not just looking at our actions, the things we do, but the motives behind those actions. Why? Again, because he's sovereign and in control and nothing gets past him. Yeah, so why is this important? Why is it significant that God judges our actions and, and, and motives, not just our actions, but he, he judges the motive of our heart? Well, it's important to know because we're often guilty of giving ourselves a pass. That's what verse 2 is saying. Our motives are often pure in our own eyes. Our, our, our plans are often, are the, the thinking that we have, we're often, we feel justified in it. And we're often guilty of, of being much harder judges of other people than we are ourselves, right? I think if we're honest before the Lord this morning and ask him to, to, to convict us where we've done this, we would all probably be guilty of this. That we're more strict on other people, we're more judgmental of other people than we are ourselves. Well, I know I lost my cool, but what they did to me was really, really, really terrible. This is how we did that. We admitted something wrong, but it was justified because of what they did. Or, or I, I know I shouldn't have said that thing. I know I should have uh, had, had more control of my tongue, and I shouldn't have said those things. But that guy at work, man, he's always lying, and, and he curses like a sailor. And I, I, can't, I can't even stand to be around him. He's having an influence. You see what we did there? Like, I admit this sort of thing, but it's not really my fault in the end. It's this guy. If it weren't for him, this has been our problem since the beginning, right? Our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, had this same issue. Well, I did this, but, but, but she did. Or in the case of Eve, I did this, but, but, but you gave me this woman, right? It's God's fault. We're often much more strict of other people's uh, actions than we are our own, and so we need to know that God judges our motives so that we don't deceive ourselves by judging from our own standard. 
Let me recap, and then I'll make one clarification. Verse 1, God's in control. We plan, but ultimately he brings about the results. Verse 3, this should cause us to depend fully and humbly upon him. Because verse 2, he knows and judges our, our actions and our motives. He knows why you did that thing you did. And so, in light of all of that, let me be really clear. From even the start this morning, talking about a subject like God's sovereignty and his control, I want to be clear that we're not fatalists. We're not determinists, that, that everything is already decided, and so we can just live however we want because God's going to have his way in the end anyways. And that's a pagan concept. That's a pagan concept. We, we're not fatalists. We're not determinists because we believe we make real choices, and we're free and responsible to make wise choices. And divine sovereignty and human responsibility go together in some way that we don't yet fully understand, but one way, one day we will when we're in his presence. I think it'll make sense. Right now on this earth, it's hard to understand, but the Bible demonstrates both, and so we embrace both. That yes, God is completely sovereign, and yes, we make real choices, and we're responsible for those choices. If we're not careful, we can fall into error in one of two ways here. Error number one is that for us to be truly free, then God can't be completely sovereign. Right? That's an error that we would fall into. The other is the, the flip side of that coin, that for God to be completely sovereign, then we must be like robots, right? Programmed to work exactly like God had predetermined anyways. And neither of those are true. The Bible teaches us that God is completely sovereign and we make real choices that we're accountable for. And these verses then uh, show us that, that, that we're, we should not just go about doing our own work, making our own plans, and then we sort of pray and ask God to bless those things. Like, God, you see the work of my hand. You see the plans I have in place. Will you bless those things? No, the, the better, and, and what this, this scripture is teaching us is that we pray beforehand. We seek the, the face of God, and we make plans as we look to his word because that's our ultimate guide and truth. And then, we, and then we move and we act according to what we believe God is leading us in, always willing to adapt if we, if we see that God's leading in a different way. We trust his direction and vision. We're not meant to be paralyzed in fear of missing God. Right? I think so many of us, if, if we err, we err even maybe this way on the other side of the spectrum, that I don't want to move yet because I've not been clear, I've not, I've not seen God clearly showing me this, and I don't want to miss God. No, we pray, we plan, we act, we work, we trust, we depend, we submit, all the while praying, God, I want to submit and follow your will. And so I'm acting, working, trusting, depending that you're, that you're leading me. And then we rinse and repeat, and we pray, and we plan, and we act, and we work, and we trust, and we depend, and we submit. And it's this continued process where we live with a supernatural peace, recognizing God is in control, right? This allows us to sleep at night, knowing that if we've messed up or if we've made mistakes or if we've sinned against God, if we've gotten sidetracked, that God's not caught off guard. He's not surprised by that. And in all of these circumstances, he's working out for our good and for his glory. Romans eight twenty eight. Listen, if, if the doctrine of God's sovereignty makes you uneasy or uncomfortable, then you're probably misunderstanding it in some way. And that's a possibility for me, and that's a possibility for every person in this room this morning. Listen, it's meant to be a soft pillow and a heavy dose of NyQuil for the Christian soul, that God is in control, and this helps us to rest. This helps us to have peace, that, that God has got this, that God has you, that you're in the center of his hand, and there's nothing that's going to take you from him. You're not in control of your life, and so you can stop fretting and worrying like you are. Do you hear how this brings us peace and rest in him? Second observation in this text. We trust God will sovereignly judge evil. 
Look at verses 4 and 5, and before I even read it, I'll, I'll admit to you this is the toughest part of this passage, of this text. You listen as I read verses 4 and 5. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. This is tough, especially the last part of, of verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, there are two ways to understand this, two ways to interpret this. Either one, God has created the wicked for destruction. Or two, the punishment itself of the wicked is part of God's divine plan. It's a part of his plan from the beginning. Either way, what the Bible is making clear to us is that God is not the author of evil. And yet, he simultaneously judges the wicked and evil for even his glory. Either interpretation here, we need to see that this is good news. Even if it's a hard pill to swallow, it's good news. Why? Because nothing escapes God. His sovereignty is such that there is no exception. And even when it looks like the wicked are prospering, and even when it looks like the righteous are suffering, and even when it seems unfair and unjust and like evil is winning the day, verse 5 assures us that sin and corruption will not go unpunished. You can trust that. They will not escape judgment. You will observe in these verses that the text is not overly concerned with how this judgment's coming about or when this judgment is coming about. The Bible does speak to that, but this text is not pointing us there. No, the focus of this text is pointing us to the certainty of that judgment. That evil and suffering will not last forever. Do you hear the hope in that, believer? That the circumstances of our world right now, the things that you may be losing sleep about right now, will not last forever. Suffering will not win. In the end, God will. That should bring us joy and peace, believer. So if you're struggling with this idea of God being completely sovereign, if that sounds unjust or unfair to you, ask yourself, do you really want to live in a world where God is not in supreme control? If God is not in control, then how can I trust what he says in, in Revelation 21? What he's saying here in, in, in Proverbs 16, that there will be a day when there will be no more tears. If God's not in complete control, how can I trust that that's actually going to come about? How can I trust that he has the, the, the power and the ability, the authority to bring that day about when there will be no more tears, when he'll wipe every tear from our eye? If he's not sovereign, then we can't be certain that evil will be conquered, that sin will stop, that suffering will cease. But if he is sovereign, then what he said will be true. Here's the thing, believer. From verses 4 and 5, we can bet our last dollar that God will judge sinners. He will. It's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. And here's the thing. That's a terrifying realization because we are sinners. Like, like, like as, as much as this text brings us joy and peace and rest in God's sovereignty... The reality of verse 4 and 5 should strike fear into our hearts that God will judge evil, that none of it escapes his eye, that none of it will go unpunished, that every last, even what we would call little small sin, will be punished. That should strike fear into our hearts unless there's more to the story. And praise God, there is. That leads us to our third observation in the text. Third observation in the text, we have hope that God will sovereignly save sinners. Just as much as he will punish evil and just as much as he will judge evil, he will sovereignly save sinners. Look at verses 6 through 9. Remind you, verse 5, if you still have your Bibles open, verse 5 ended with the certainty of sinners punished, right? That's terrifying news. But look at how verse 6 begins. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. 
By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Listen, friends, God must pour out his wrath on sin. A holy God who's just and righteous in every way can't sweep sin under the rug, right? Like we use this illustration when we're sharing the gospel in places like Malaysia that, that we talk about a courtroom and a judge. And we ask uh, an unbeliever, uh, what, what would you say if you came into this courtroom and you saw the judge, right, sitting on his, on his seat, his authority, he's supposed to be enacting justice, and you have someone come in who's been, who's been accused of murder, Maybe even the murder of, of, of the man, man's son. Maybe the man is in the room that has lost his son to, a, to a, a heinous murder. And the judge says, man, did you do this? And the man admits, yeah, I did it. But I'm really, really sorry. I did it, but I, but I, but I hate that I did it. What would you think about that judge who looked at that man and says, okay, you seem to be sorry. You can go free. Take the handcuffs off of him and let him go. That's not justice. That's not a good judge. That's a corrupt judge who's not carrying out justice and, and righteousness and doing what's right. How much more our holy God, in whom there is no injustice, in whom there is no unrighteousness. He can't look at sin and go, okay, you're good. It has to be punished. It must be punished. And that punishment is his wrath against that sin. But verse 6 shows us that while, yes, he must punish sin, he also made atonement for sin. Yes, he is holy. He must judge sin. But what he did on the cross is he made atonement for. He paid for that sin himself. He, he paid for that sin. That's what atonement is teaching us and showing us so that we can escape the reality of hell. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted your life to this king, to this God, that's what he did on your behalf so that he wouldn't have to punish your sin eternally in a real place called hell. He sent his son to die for that sin. And that's what he offers you is forgiveness in life today. Because he's a right judge. He's a right judge. The definition of steadfast love and faithfulness, that's what Christ did. Verse 6, where it says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He made atonement for sin by trading his perfect life for your unholy one, for my sinful one. When it comes, from to, the, when it comes to the atonement, that's what we, we see happening here in the text. But, but we must ask, what comes from this atonement? What is the product of having our sins removed, put onto Christ's account? Well, we see that in the text as well. The atonement leads to being more like Jesus. Look at the end of verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Meaning that when your sins are covered, when they're no longer against you because Jesus has taken them on himself, then you begin to fear the Lord, and that fear of the Lord means that you begin to turn from evil. Oh, what a joy, friend. In other words, when you start fearing the Lord because your sins have been removed, they've been atoned for, you begin to look like the one who died in your place. That's great news. But there's, but there's even better. It gets better. The deal gets sweeter. Look at verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So a couple questions here. What does it mean a man's way pleases the Lord? Can I remind you what Jesus said? He said, I am the way the truth in the life. So hear this, church. The only way that we can please the Lord is by being in the way who is the Lord. When you are in Christ, you can trust that when you are abiding in Christ, then your way is, is pleasing to him. That's good news for us. 
Well, what happens when we please the Lord? That's maybe the second question that should come from this. Not, not, not only what way do we please the Lord, but what happens when we do please him? Continue reading. It says his enemies are made to be at peace with him. Don't miss this, church. The gospel is all over this passage. Who are our enemies? The Bible tells us we don't f- war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against rulers, against uh, the, the Satan and the devil and, and evil that's real in this world, spiritual warfare and battle that takes place. And when we are in Christ, we can be sure that he sovereignly conquered those enemies once and for all. They have no authority over us. He's defeated them by his death and resurrection. And the cross, when we look to the cross and when we see that, that hill called Golgotha and the Son of God hanging there, it's a picture of God defeating our enemies. It's a picture of what God has done on our behalf, saving those who submit to him. John Stott says in his book, The Cross of Christ, uh, I don't think of a book that I could recommend more highly to you if you just wanted to pick up a book this, re- this, this week and start reading, maybe before the end of the year, during this holiday season, The Cross of Christ. Uh, l- listen to what he says. This, this ought to whet your appetite to continue reading this book. This is what he says about the cross and our enemies being defeated there. He says, look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on the cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails or ropes or both, pinned there and powerless, It appears to be total defeat. If there is victory, it's the victory of pride and prejudice and jealousy and hatred and cowardice and brutality. And yet the Christian claim is that the reality is actually the opposite of the appearance. What looks like the defeat of goodness by evil is also and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim is the victor. And the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. Fulfilled is now the, what David told in true prophetic song of old, how God the heathens king should be, for God is reigning from the tree. Oh, friends, that's what we see in the cross of Christ, is that the cross is this perfect picture of God taking something that was meant for evil and making it something for his glory. That's the ultimate picture that we see in the cross. And in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, says this exact thing. That Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, in the cross, we see both. It's the clearest indicator that we can trust the sovereignty of God because both are true. Yes, he was killed by the hands of lawless men. That is true. But also, yes, it was God's ordained plan, plan predestined before time. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 the, the apostles in the book of Acts were making this truth so clear to us over and over again. And here, Acts 4, 27 and 28, Peter and John are praying to God. And listen to what they pray. Truly in this city, here were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see all of it, right? Pilate, Herod, The Jews, the Romans, they're not kicking and screaming with their hands tied behind their back saying, we don't want Jesus to die. We don't want to do this, but we're being forced to do this against our will. No, God is using the wicked choices that they're making, that they're making in their freedom to bring about his sovereign plan. Both are true. Both are true. And so believer, you see how this changes your life, right? Yes, we have our sins forgiven, we're made right with God through the cross of Christ, but in a practical, everyday application of this truth, look what it says to us. It says that you can trust God's sovereignty because you can trust it in the death of his son. 
That, that if you can trust God's sovereignty in, in the killing of Jesus, then you can trust that in whatever evil comes into your life, whatever chaos comes into your life, he'll use for your good. His sovereignty means that the suffering, the chaos, the turmoil of life is not meaningless. It's not wasted. It's not ultimate. He's using it. He's using it to produce glory for his namesake. You may not see it now, and you may not see it this side of heaven, but you can trust that what you're going through, even right now, God is using for your good and for his glory. Now, when we read iniquity atoned for in verse 6, right? if you're looking at verse 6, when we read iniquity atoned for, our theological antenna right, should go up and we should start dinging. Uh, that's Jesus. <laughs> When we hear things like that, iniquity atoned for, it should automatically make us think of the cross of Jesus. Even if it's in the Old Testament, even if it's the wisdom literature of Proverbs. When we hear iniquity atoned for, we think Jesus. But in case you, in case you missed that and, and you didn't get it and it wasn't your knee-jerk reaction to think Jesus, look at the way that the writer ends this section, verses 10 through 15. It leads to our fourth, fourth observation in the text. We rejoice because God's sovereign rule was evidenced in the Messiah. Read with me verse 10 through 15. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in his bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil. For the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of the king's face, there is life, and his, favor is like, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. There's a word play that happens here in the text. You probably missed it. I did as well because we don't speak Hebrew. But if you did and you were able to speak Hebrew, there's a beautiful poetry that's taking place uh, and some rhyming and some rhythm here. In, in verses 1 through 8, the word Lord is used in every verse, all of them, verses 1 through 8. And then you get to verses 10 through 15, and the word king is used in every verse except verse 11. And so there's this connection here that the writer is, is, is painting for us, that God intended for us. Uh, this is how prophecy works, that, that, that there's an intention here that's immediately fulfilled in the Old Testament, but ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And that's what we see going on here. There's a connection we need to see, that just as God is sovereign, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, just as he is sovereign and in control of all things, there's a king who was coming who would also reign with that supreme sovereignty. And that king is Messiah. That king is King Jesus. And he rules with the same sovereign power that we see in the God of the Old Testament. And watch how each part of this points to that sovereign king, King Jesus. Verse 10, an oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. That means that this prophetic Messiah, this one who's coming, will judge rightly with no error. This is fulfilled in Jesus. We don't have time to turn there right now, but if you want to write down Acts chapter 2, verse 25 through 36, this is where we see evidence that David's prophecy of Jesus' rule, his perfect rule and righteousness is shown to be fulfilled in King Jesus. Verse 11 talks about just balance and scales. This means that Messiah would be one who treats people fairly. He doesn't cheat people. He doesn't have phony scales and weights in which he can stack against people for his own benefit and his own gain. Again, this is fulfilled in Jesus. What does Romans 3.26 say? That it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just and justifier, friends. There is no unfair balance that he's using. There is no weight 
that's stacked against people. He's right in all of his dealings. Verse 12 says it's an abomination for kings to do evil. Good thing Jesus was sinless. Good thing that he was perfect in righteousness. He checks that box as well. There was no sin that came from him. His lips never spoke sinfully. That's what verse 13 says, righteous lips. The one who speaks right and truth, gracious speech. Does Jesus fit that bill? John 1.14 says he does. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is picture perfect. Jesus is the one that fulfills the righteous lips, the Messiah who would come, who would only speak grace and truth. No mixture of error, no wrong, no conceit. This is Jesus. Verses 14 and 15 show us that the, his wrath ends in death. And in his face, the face of this king, there is life. His favor is like the spring rain. And this is precisely what we see in Jesus. That for those of us who are in Christ, that final day will be a glad day when we see our Savior face to face. When our eyes lock with his, when our gaze is upon his face, we will then and only then know what true life really is. It's light. It's like the clouds of a spring rain. But the opposite is also true. For those of us who are not in Christ, for those of us that have not placed faith and trust in King Jesus, it'll be death. This king who brings life, also his wrath brings death. And so the question is for us, which one of those are we? Which one are you? In all of these verses, the writer of Proverbs and the way that he's ending verses 10 through 15 is he's perfectly describing this king, this Messiah who was coming, who would rule with the kind of sovereignty that we saw in verses 1 through 8. And this was written 960 years before Jesus was born, and Jesus fulfills it perfectly. So in light of all of this, I think our response is in one of two ways. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ You've never repented of your sins. You've never followed after Christ in faith, believing that his death on the cross was for your sins. Then today, that is the decision that's on the table for you to make. And today, if you, if you reject that truth or if you leave here and you don't submit to that reality of King Jesus being Lord and Savior, sovereign King of the universe, then you're not promised tomorrow and the reality may be death for you. Not just physical death, but the wrath of God, eternal death forever for rejecting his son. The reality on the other side of that is for us as believers who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, who have repented of sins, this morning the truth for you to believe, the way this transforms your life is for you to believe that whatever brings, whatever tomorrow brings, you're in the, in the hand of your sovereign king. There is nothing that can come against you in this world that could snatch you from his hand. You can rest tonight knowing that whatever this week, whatever next year brings, you are his. His son, his daughter. And his love for you is unending because when he looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. Do you hear the rest and peace that that brings to you? That whatever decisions are on the plate, on, on the table for you, that whatever, whatever things that you've got to work through, whatever things, that decisions that you're praying through and wanting God to, to lead you in, you can trust his sovereign plan. He's not caught off guard. He's not making this thing up as he goes. He's not the watchmaker who winds the watch and then just says, let me watch how this unfolds. He loves you and he's intimately involved in every detail of your life. You can rest in that. He's worthy of our, our submission. He's worthy of our trust. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come to you thanking you that you are sovereign and in control and that the circumstances of the year 2020 have no 
uh, no way surprised you. They have in no way caught you off guard or caught you sleeping. You're not in heaven wringing your hands, wondering what in the world we're going to do. That at this moment, you are in complete and sovereign control. And so, God, I pray rest for every person in this room, for every believer that's trusted you, that Jesus has, has taken their sin upon himself. God, I pray rest that in their jobs, in their families, in their marriages, in their finances, they would rest knowing that you're in control and knowing that you're sovereign and that that would move them to meaningful action, planning, praying, trusting, trusting that you're in control. And then, God, for those in the room this morning that have never trusted you, I pray today would be their spiritual birthday, that today would be the day when they call upon the name of Christ and, 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 and re repent of their sins, confess their sins before you so that you can bring rest for them. God, in whatever way you're working in our hearts right now, I pray that we would submit. I pray that our answer would be yes in all of the ways you're challenging us and convicting us even right now. We need you, Jesus. So as we look at the text today and as we, we reflect on, as we go and have lunch, may our conversations push us to, to see King Jesus, our Messiah, who is in sovereign and complete control, and help us to rejoice in that. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. A few announcements for you this morning before we're dismissed. Uh, first, um, this is the last day to turn in your Operation Christmas Child boxes. I saw many of you doing that this morning. Thank you for that. Uh, I want us to pray as we conclude the service in just a moment as we uh, leave here. I want to pray that the Lord would use those boxes and, and, and ask him to do that specifically. And for those that don't know, Operation Christmas Child, you guys pack those boxes, fill them with toys. They go around the world uh, to, to children that would otherwise not be getting a Christmas uh, as far as gifts and, and, and presents and those sorts of things. And with that, each and every one of those comes with uh, a track, a little booklet explaining the gospel. What we just saw in the text this morning, that King Jesus is the sovereign king who died in your place. And so we believe that as that gospel goes forth, as the word of God goes forth, the Lord will use it, and we want to pray that he'll do that. And so as we conclude this morning, I uh, want to pray over and, and ask God to use those boxes, the works of, of your hands, as you've gathered the things and packed those things. Um, so thank you for doing that. If you haven't, uh, if you forgot them at home on the, on, the, on the countertop at home or something like that, get them back. If you could this evening, uh, they'll go out um, this week um, to the headquarters and be, be sent out. So make sure you get those turned in. Uh, second, uh, there's a, a quick video that I want to show you guys that gives you an update from um, our ministry partners in Baltimore with the Garden Church and in Uganda with Pastor Hillary and Lamino Town Baptist Church. And so these are, it's two videos, but we put them together in one. And so you, you guys check out this, this, uh, this quick update from them and how we can pray for them, the things that they're working through. And then uh, one of our elders, David, is going to come and share with you a few more details about an upcoming trip to Uganda and then close out our time together by praying for those boxes. Um, so you watch this video and, uh, and, and see how God's working. <laughs> 